Hi there and welcome along to a brand new episode of the Therapy Explained podcast where we discuss one of the frontiers of psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Joining me is Shannon Carlin, the Chief of Training and Supervision for MDMA-assisted therapy at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. MAPS are currently completing the third and final phase of their clinical trials on MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD and hope that it will become a legal treatment in 2023. Shannon explains the link between the criminalization of MDMA and the founding of its research in therapy, what MDMA-assisted therapy is, how it differs from standard therapy, its current evidence base, and when we can expect it to be available to the public. As ever, if you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to subscribe and rate. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm your host, James Lloyd, and this week I am joined by Shannon Carlin. Shannon is the Chief of Training and Supervision at MAPS, who are the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, where she oversees the development and implementation of clinical training programs that prepare mental health and medical professionals to deliver MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in approved clinical settings. Shannon is also a licensed psychotherapist. Uh, Hi, Shannon. Thanks for joining me today after that lengthy introduction. Yeah, hi. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. There's uh, so much for us to cover today, uh, Shannon, but the majority of what we'll be looking at, uh, I hope, is um, the topic of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I was wondering if you could start by explaining what is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, so it's a novel kind of psychotherapy, and I'll just use the word therapy for short, um, that is under investigation, meaning that it's being researched now for its safety and efficacy. So to determine how effective it is in treating different kinds of mental health conditions. So MAPS has been studying MDMA-assisted therapy since its founding, really. In 1986, MAPS was founded in the United States. And the predominant studies have been used to study post-traumatic stress disorder, but also studies on social anxiety, different kinds of anxiety, alcoholism, um, many different treatments. And what it is really is that it's a drug plus a psychotherapy, which is unique. That doesn't happen very often. Usually drugs are in the realm of medicine with doctors and nurses, and psychotherapy is the realm of therapists and counselors who don't handle drugs. Um, I'm a licensed therapist myself, and so this modality requires us to be really multidisciplinary. And what it is is that MDMA itself, a chemical, is used as a therapeutic tool in the process of psychotherapy. So MDMA, many people call it a psychedelic. If you wanted to get really detailed about it, some people call it an intactogen or an empathogen, um, which is... It is a psychoactive substance. It was actually first synthesized in 1912 by Merck Pharmaceuticals in Germany. It was being studied for something else altogether. I think it was uh, blood coagulation in rodents. And so it was put on the shelf. It wasn't that interesting for blood coagulation. Um, But then it was picked up by a chemist in California, Sasha Shulgin, in the late 70s. And then a group of psychologists got a hold of it and had personal experiences with MDMA. Some of the subjective effects is that it produces feelings of empathy and positivity towards oneself and others. So general well-feeling, positive feeling. 
And there can be increased, you know, kind of sensitivity and connection with the body. Um, sensitivity, for example, like in the hands and in, on the skin being really um, kind of sensual in a way and connected to one's own body and experience and emotions. Um, so psychologists in California used MDMA as an adjunct for couples therapy in the 80s. And this was kind of a gray area because MDMA was not an approved substance. The regulatory agencies didn't even know about it. So it was just this gray area that it wasn't regulated. But for couples therapy, it was incredibly effective because it would kind of suspend that part of the mind that can be judgmental, judgmental analytical, and puts that aside and allows people to reconnect with love and, and openness and positivity. And then in the U.S. in 1985, the Drug Enforcement Agency made MDMA a Schedule One substance. Basically, they made MDMA illegal and unavailable because the rave scene, the party scene had gotten a hold of it. It's an excellent party drug, something that makes you feel good. Um, people want to feel good. So it became really popular in kind of the club and dance scene in the mid-80s, which is how the DEA found out about it and made it illegal. Different countries around the world kind of followed suit roughly around that time in the 80s. MAPS was founded the very next year. And since 1986, when MAPS was founded, we've been through this very long, expensive, laborious process of clinical research. Once MDMA was made illegal, the only real avenue for pursuing research into its therapeutic properties was through clinical development, drug development process, which has many different steps of research, of which we're on um, one of the last steps. And we hope that MDMA-assisted therapy can become a legal treatment in the U.S. in 2023 and in other countries shortly thereafter. All those years later, you're kind of in the last stretch of research. And, and just going back to the development or the founding of MAPS, is it just a coincidence that it was founded the year after MDMA was made illegal? Or was that part reason why the organization was founded? Yeah, not a coincidence at all. Um, so in the early 80s, when... MDMA was being used in couples therapy in this kind of gray area, and also when the party scene was finding out about it. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, um, was introduced to MDMA during that time, and he studied law and policy, and he kind of knew it's only a matter of time until this becomes illegal, so what are we going to do with these precious years that we have where it's not yet illegal? So Rick, being um, the rebel, and we call him the psychedelic cowboy that he is, um, bless his heart, he's still leading MAPS 30-some years later. Um, I don't think the man ever gets tired. <laughs> um, he decided he was going to collect as much MDMA he could and ship it to people like priests and rabbis and politicians and psychologists and lawmakers so that they could have personal experiences before it became illegal. And he said, please consider having an experience with this substance and writing about it, because it's only a matter of time before the government's going to make it illegal. And when they attempt to do that, we would like you to write an expert testimony to some of the potential therapeutic effects of MDMA. And um, Rick really was saying, try to make it into a schedule, into a law, where it's easy for doctors and scientists to study it more. Don't make it hard for us to do science with MDMA. 
you can regulate it. Just don't make it hard for us to do science because there's so much potential here. So when the DEA finally started coming down on MDMA, the process in the U.S. is that it goes to a court trial. Many dozens of people gave expert testimony, including some of these folks that Rick had mailed MDMA to, and said we're lead psychologists, we're lead spiritual leaders, we're lead politicians, and we think that there's potential benefit here. Please put it into a schedule so we can continue to do science with it. That court judge actually ruled so that MDMA should be scheduled too, which would allow more science to happen, but make it more difficult for people to obtain MDMA um, in, in a decriminalized way. There's a lot that could be said about decriminalization, so I'll just leave that mm. at that. But um, when the DEA takes that court hearing, they don't necessarily have to accept the judge's ruling. It's just a suggestion. So the DEA said, thanks for your suggestion. We don't agree. We are going to make it Schedule 1. And Schedule 1 basically means, I think it's called Schedule A in, in the UK, um, basically means the government thinks there's no potential benefit. It's extremely dangerous, extremely addictive, should never be accessed by humans ever, is basically what Schedule 1 means. Well, that makes it very difficult to do anything with that substance, including very controlled, regulated research. But here we are, 30-some-odd years later, and the government has approved dozens of studies by now with MDMA. We've gotten amazing results with the substance. About two-thirds of people who come into the MDMA-assisted therapy trials who have post-traumatic stress no longer qualify as having post-traumatic stress after the study. And those results, we track them over a matter of years, seem to last. And that's really amazing because there aren't many cures in psychiatry and mental health. And, and really to, for someone to be able to say that they no longer have post-traumatic stress is a huge blessing. And so we're in the last stage of this research, collecting data with a bigger sample size, more people, not just in the US and Canada, Israel. Um, we just started our studies across the EU and the UK. And this data will go to regulators in the next couple of years to give our final application to reschedule MDMA three decades later to make it into a Schedule 2 or 3 substance so that doctors can write prescriptions for people who may be able to medically and psychologically benefit. Mm. So that's the hope within the next couple of years that it might be uh, available over the counter or over subscription. By prescription. By prescription. Yeah. Mm. Um, and just kind of get an idea of what it is about MDMA-assisted therapy that makes it so different to kind of traditional talk therapy. I get the sense so far that there's something about it that helps facilitate facilitate something as you say when it was used in couples therapy it helped kind of take down maybe the uh the aspects of us that are that are argumentative or are angry with our partner and um, can you tell us a little bit more about you know what makes mdma therapy different to traditional talk therapy yeah and i've gotten the honor to work on some of the map studies over the years with participants directly as a therapist so I love answering this question because I can almost feel myself back in the presence mm. of the participants and the medicine. And I just want to say for a moment, you know, I want to express so much gratitude for all of the people who've participated in the research. They've been courageous not only to enter into their own healing practice, but to allow 
me and other therapists to participate in that and for MAPS to participate in that so that the hope is that that their experience can benefit many other people in the future. So thank you to all the people who've participated in the studies. Um, So what makes it different from talk therapy? Many things. There's the theoretical approach, which I'll talk about in a minute, and then there's some logistics about it. So some of the logistics, it's a psychoactive substance, and it induces, like like psychedelics do, a non-ordinary state of consciousness. So people are entering into a different kind of consciousness and perception. The reason why I said MDMA isn't necessarily a classic psychedelic is because it doesn't typically produce visual or auditory hallucinations. It's relatively lucid compared to some of the classic psychedelics like mushroom, psilocybin, LSD. But it is a a psychedelic experience nonetheless. And so having that effect really requires that people practicing this therapy understand non-ordinary states. It's a different paradigm of working. It's kind of like you wouldn't go to a meditation retreat with a facilitator who didn't know about meditation. It is a part of the experience and the intention of the experience. And because of the effects of MDMA, the effects of MDMA last acutely for about four to six hours. Our sessions are about six to eight hours of therapy in one day. So it's a long therapy session, different. And I love that aspect of MDMA-assisted therapy, to be able to say at the beginning of the day to somebody that this whole day is for you. We don't have to rush to talk through everything in a 50-minute talk therapy session. It's allowing things to unfold, having an experience together, and just that experience for participants to know because we work in co-therapy pairs, we have two therapists in the room with every participant. So for the participant to show up and to be in the presence of two people who are just there to hold space for them for the entire day, you know, sometimes that's anxiety provoking for people like, what, you guys are going to watch me all day? Or what are you doing over there? Um, And, you know, we talk through that. But really for us to say, you're worth being with this entire day. Your process is worth being with. Your process is worth time. Your process is worth more time than 50 minutes. So that's really powerful, and that allows the container so that the medicine experience can happen fully and completely. Um, the theoretical approach, partly because of the effects of MDMA, we use an approach which is borrowed and evolved off of many people who came before MAPS was ever founded. Stan Groff, Jungian psychology, shamanic practices, that group of psychologists that were doing couples therapy and other experimental therapies with MDMA, Leo Zeff, George Greer, Requa Tolbert, um, shamanic practices, ceremonial practices, the list goes on and on. There's so many people that contributed to this body of work. And we work with a term which is borrowed from Jung called the inner healing intelligence. And it doesn't have to be those particular words, but I will use that term to describe what is within every single human, the ability to move towards wholeness and well-being. And so we like to use some metaphors to describe that. The metaphor I like is planting a seed. I'm a gardener. So when 
a gardener plants a seed, they can't make the seed grow. I, I don't know how to make a seed grow. I can't sit there and force it to do that. But I can provide all the right environmental conditions in hopes that that seed will grow. And still, sometimes I don't succeed. But the soil, the water, the sun, the air, the nutrients. And that is essential for that seed to grow. When that seed is in that environment, it will naturally grow into its mature, full self. Mm-hmm. And so there's a similar process with, with psychotherapy in general, with personal growth. And we think that MDMA facilitates that process of having people connect with their own intrinsic ability to heal. The healing doesn't come from MDMA. The healing doesn't come from the therapist. The healing doesn't even necessarily come from, you know, the eight hours of the therapy. It's those are all part of the container that allows someone to finally have an experience that's safe and secure enough to relate to their own intrinsic wisdom. And so we use an approach we call the inner directed approach, which is that the process of therapy, the direction of it, the pace of it, all is informed from the client. Um, There's different kinds of client-centered approaches. And we do things like when we ask questions, they're open-ended and aim at having the client be the one that's bringing content into the room. So I'm not saying, oh, that sounds like an issue you had with your mother when you were seven years old. So that would be an interpretation. But I would ask, you know, are there earlier times in your life this reminds you of? Or how old is that voice that's speaking to you? to have that person connect more deeply in, in different facets with the experience they're talking about. Um, there's a lot that could be said about that. Um, and it's really beautiful because somebody's relationship to their own intrinsic wisdom is going to last much longer than the, the weeks and months of therapy. It's something that they take with them always. Yeah, there's so much to love about that, about what you said there, uh, Shannon. It's, it's such a change in your standard approach to therapy, as you say, those 50 minutes, which it's a real kind of constraint to it, having to try and warm up and cool down uh, whatever you're working on in that amount of time. Having two people, um, you can see the utility of that, um, you know, just having even different perspectives, the person feeling like they've got additional support. Uh, and as you say, the container that all those things and the MDMA creates to facilitate that inner healing which is something that is something that's come up in nearly every episode i've done of this podcast that so many therapies have the this this idea that the the ability to heal is inside us and that if we can get the right i guess they all kind of take it from different approaches but the same thing is what you're looking to do is to find that um approach to heal your inner child uh, is a common one that comes up um, and it makes me think about with EMDR, it's, it's, it, you also try to be non-directive when you're processing. You just kind of let whatever comes up, comes up. Just as much as you trust your body to heal a wound, it's like you trust the process that it can do that. And I can yeah. so see how MDMA would help, you know, really supercharge that. Because again, something that can come up in EMDR, sometimes you might use it blocking beliefs. It's hard to get to that healing place because we feel like we don't deserve it or variations of that. Uh, and it also comes up in other types of therapies like internal family systems. You might have protectors that stop you from getting there. And this seems to kind of ask them to step aside and you can just embody self as much as possible to take another internal family systems um, idea. So you can kind of get into that part of you that, that can do the healing. 
Uh, so it just seems to take so many of those aspects and put them together. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say something about that, which is really that MDMA kind of has this effect that it shows, it increases awareness, so it shows us those things that we might tend to avoid, which usually we're aware of on some level, um, mm. but MDMA kind of gently brings it forward, and because of its effects on the brain, it reduces activity in the amygdala, which is the fear response part of the brain, and it works on the neuroreceptors of endorphins and norepinephrine and serotonin, so producing positive feelings within one's, you know, chemistry even. And that allows us to approach those shadow parts or blind spots or scary parts of ourselves or our history with a different kind of nervous system response. And mm -hmm. so one thing that happens, especially when people are doing trauma processing with MDMA therapy, it's really unique to MDMA that you kind of see the person, they, they will often describe, I can think of a particular session, being in two places at once, being back at that trauma in the past, might have been you know, a short while ago or a very, very long time ago, but really being there, seeing and feeling and sensing what it's like to be there, feeling the heart racing in that moment, feeling whatever sensations were happening in the body in that traumatic situation. And recounting memories sometimes incredibly slowly and incredibly detailed, the quality of the light or reading something that was on the wall, a poster that one didn't even recognize previously. And then simultaneously being very much present in the therapy room. So as opposed to, you know, dissociation where you kind of leave the present and you go somewhere else there is a, also a connection to the present room and a participant can say, you know, I feel my body on the couch. I can hear the music. This song is bringing lightness to me. I can feel the therapist sitting next to me. Maybe they have a blanket or an object or something in their hand in the therapy room. So this simultaneous presence. And I think that that really speaks to the value of this medicine and the courage of our participants to go to these places that it allows us because that fear activity is reduced to be able to revisit the trauma with resources. So it's mm -hmm. not just re-traumatizing. It's not exposure therapy. It is going with some resources and then seeing what unfolds. And typically there's a greater sense of resourcing and security and permission to really stick with the trauma experience. Because when we go into trauma, you know, sometimes our mind can be like, this is trauma from my past. It was not safe. So why would I ever want to stay here? I need to leave. And then those are the coping mechanisms people have with post-traumatic stress. They, you know, dissociate or freeze or have night terrors, etc. But with the MDMA, they're actually able to stick with that experience and really go kind of play the whole reel of the experience and the memories from front to end, which helps them consolidate. That theme of facing our fears is uh, it, it's just a thread that runs through, I think, every type of psychotherapy, but with the caveat that you need to be able to do it for a prolonged period of time and not feel so overwhelmed that it, you can't do it, that you have to run away. 
So if you can stick with it, well, again, which sounds like the MDMA helps as well as everything else that's in the therapy room. Um, yeah, it can help you go to those extremely dark places and it's no wonder that it was PTSD that he chose to work on um, because I can imagine that's one of the most difficult yeah. uh, experiences to return to. Just thinking about the types of therapies that are used, am I right that it's somatic experiencing and internal family systems? Are they the two main therapies that are used as part of the therapy model for MDMA-assisted therapy? Not exactly. So our our approach we call, again, you know, the inner-directed approach, which mm. really can synergize very well with many different kinds of modalities of psychotherapy. It happens that several of the therapists who come into this modality and come to the training program that we run are trained in somatic experiencing or internal family systems, IFS, or Hakomi, many different practices. What happens naturally related to those particular modalities is because MDMA connects people with their body and because trauma happens also in the body, somatic experiences experiences that happen in the body, processing feeling through the body and memories are naturally going to arise in MDMA-assisted therapy. So it's really important that practitioners understand that there are somatic manifestations of trauma and different psychology structures Mm -hmm. and how to work with those. And that doesn't always involve touch from the practitioner but it needs, there needs to be competence in working with, you know, where do you feel that in your body and how do we work with sensations in the body as part of the therapeutic process. With IFS, internal family systems, one of our lead trainers, Michael Methoffer, had been running the MDMA-assisted therapy studies with MAPS for many years alongside his wife, Annie Methoffer. And he went into training with Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS, maybe it was something like 10 years ago or so, and was amazed at some of the synergy between our modalities that people in MDMA-assisted therapy particularly naturally talked about parts of themselves. And we all talk about parts. So internal family systems works with different kinds of parts. And I know you had a previous episode on that. We all naturally talk about parts. Well, part of me wants to do this, part of me wants to do that. But in MDMA, partly because of that double presence I mentioned where people can revisit trauma and they can be in the, in the room or they can connect with different aspects of their self they may not have been conscious of. Parts really can come out, protector parts and inner child parts and, and all of it. So that can be a helpful framework for people to have IFS training, but parts will come up regardless um, of whether we solicit them or not. And really the reason why we don't have a particular you know, interdirected approach is kind of a theoretical stance. It's a way of being in the mm. room but with, with a client rather than a set of techniques or a, a pedagogy. We are really attempting to have an approach that allows the pedagogy to come from that client. That client, each client has a different kind of a philosophy that organizes their entire existence and their world And so instead of imposing ours onto them, we would like to solicit what theirs is and work with their pedagogy. And that's challenging. (laughs) So that is, you know, the the inner directed approach. And it really is a lot about, again, putting the focus back on the, the client in a really skilled way 
and being able to solicit from them, you know, what the structure of their psyche is and then working within that structure with them. It takes a lot of skill as a practitioner to know how to step back. We, you know, most therapists are trained in some sort of uh, style of therapy, CBT or IFS or EMDR or exposure or whatever it is. And so it takes a lot for us to kind of put that training into the back of our brains and to really see the participant as an individual and treat their process as organic in the words and the structure that, that they conjure up. Yeah. So it's very much kind of about tuning into that person, being attuned with how they're presenting throughout the course of those eight hours. And um, although it sounds like it's helpful to have a background in some form of trauma informed uh, therapy, yes. but the, the main idea is that you've got your own approach, the, the, the inner directed approach. And so using things like open ended Socratic questioning, kind of trusting in that you have the answers, the person has the answers and you just need to try and guide them in that direction while keeping in mind what might be going on, your own kind of sense of what's going on there and where maybe you need to gently lead them every now and again. The, the majority is just letting them discover it themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you're focusing much of the research on uh, MDMA. Uh, I'm wondering why that was chosen or over other uh, psych- psychedelics or drugs that are used like LSD, psilocybin, ketamine. Yeah. Part of it was that surgeons in the 80s of MDMA coming onto the scene and being experimented in this gray area with psychologists and it being kind of a new molecule to the yeah. world at that point, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And just learning of its effects and its potential and wanting to explore that. Um, and then, you know, responding to the DEA ruling of it and, and wanting to make it available. You know, I think LSD had a lot of baggage around it, especially in the 80s. Um, you know, people just coming out of the 60s and 70s and having a lot of taboo around its associations with you know, uh, war and the hippie movement and civil, the civil rights movement, you know, some very, very powerful social schemes that were happening, which is really important. It's a really crucial part of, you know, especially Western history. And in terms of bringing that medicine, LSD in particular, into the world as an accepted therapeutic practice, there was just a lot of history to work through already, whereas MDMA didn't have quite that same association. Mm. So so that was partly it, and not that there shouldn't be research with LSD. I'm glad there have been a couple of small studies with LSD. I think Beckley Foundation has done a few, um, and I hope that some of the research groups will pick it up more seriously and move it towards accessibility as MDMA and psilocybin have been. So really it was that and picking post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress, you know, there are many mental health conditions that have very poor treatment opportunities, um, most of them. (laughs) But post-traumatic stress, you know, I'm familiar most with the statistics in the United States, 8 million people have post-traumatic stress. That's a huge number of people, and only a small portion of them are getting relief from some of the currently available treatments like talk therapy, 
or EMDR or some of the pharmaceutical prescriptions that are available, antidepressant, SSRIs. So that was a big population. So thinking about, you know, those two things together and certainly MDMA has potential therapeutic benefit for other conditions. It seems like different kinds of anxiety and mood disorders, but with post-traumatic stress in particular, that ability to have the amygdala activity reduced and revisit traumatic experiences in order to process them was unique. In drug development, it's helpful to pick one path because Mm. drug development is such a time-consuming, incredibly expensive process. It really is designed for huge commercial pharmaceutical companies to move through. There are very few nonprofit pharmaceutical companies of which MAPS is one. Luckily, we're seeing that movement change where there's more nonprofit and public benefit pharmaceutical companies, which is a positive thing. And up until very recently, all of the research conducted by MAPS has been funded just by philanthropy and the generous contributions of donors, just people who care. They care about healing, they care about mental health, they care about psychedelics. Um, So we're really thankful to all of the people who've supported the research. Um, And what I wanted to say about that was, let's see. Oh, picking a pathway. So MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress. So it's taken us three decades just to get here. (laughs) And it's an amazing place to be. You know, it really feels like, wow, this thing that Rick and MAPS has been planning for felt so far away, suddenly feels very close, you know, possibly in 2023. It could be that MDMA-assisted therapy is a legal prescription treatment and becoming more widely available across the globe. That's really not that far away. And so we needed to get, we needed to focus on that to get to this point. And the hope is that when the first psychedelic treatments are approved and rescheduled, it sets this tone and hopefully this pattern that more psychedelic treatments can be researched and rescheduled. And MAPS is now having the privilege to think about what happens after MDMA-assisted therapy gets approved. What do we do then? Um, We have a lot of work to do delivering it then to the world and training people and making sure it's financially accessible and covered by insurance. But we're also looking at what other medicines, psychedelic medicines, could be studied and also brought up into accessible treatments. No, it it would really be a watershed moment for psychedelic-assisted treatments. And I can definitely see how MDMA over other type of psychoactive drugs might be chosen. You know, it's uh, maybe therapists are more likely to have tried it themselves or taken it themselves. You could see how it can really promote a therapeutic alliance. So, you know, feeling um, like you can trust someone, uh, having a greater window of tolerance. So, which is very important when you're working through traumas that you don't get so overwhelmed by it. Um, and, and, you know, as you say, yeah. kind of sidestepping the, the shame or the guilt that can come with those kind of um, experiences. You've mentioned a little bit about uh, the future of this. Uh, I'm wondering if you've, uh, if there's much research that's been done outside of the U.S. I know it's not necessarily um, your backyard, but yeah, do you know much about uh, where the rest of the world is moving in terms of uh, MDMA-assisted therapy? Yeah. Well, I certainly hope that MDMA-assisted therapy makes its way to Ireland more. <laughs> um, <laughs> Might be waiting a bit. <laughs> so, some of the history is. Um, 
some one of the first studies that MAPS conducted actually was started in Spain. I think it was the year 2000 with one of our current principal investigators and lead trainers, Marcelo Talera. And we went to Spain. She moved her family there and they treated several people until the Spanish government kind of bought into some taboo about psychedelics. What was happening early in the research, like around that time, the 90s and the early 2000s, was some kind of traditional psychiatrists and researchers and pharmaceutical legends really felt like this this couldn't be happening. We, we can't be studying psychedelics. It felt there was just too much taboo around it for them and breaking out of that paradigm that, you know, drugs are bad and they can only be bad, which is ironic because obviously doctors prescribe drugs. So kind of figuring out how do we make decisions as a culture about which drugs are good and which are bad and in what contexts and for you know which conditions and so um, there was kind of a series of papers that were published in Spain that said that MDMA produced holes in your brain that was this rumor that went around in I think even maybe as early as the 80s but in the 90s and 2000s and it in the Spanish government got really scared about that. You know, they were one of the first regulatory agencies to be approving psychedelic research, so they felt like a lot was on the line. So I shut down the study in the middle of the study, and Marcela moved back to the United States, and MAPS attempted to find ways to continue the research inside of the States, which it did, obviously. Well, it turns out that those papers had claimed that they were using MDMA. Actually, they were using methamphetamine. Um, and so they pu- they had tested methamphetamine um, and published the results, yeah, and published the results as if it was MDMA. MDMA has an amphetamine chain in its chemistry. It has a stimulating effect. It can, you know, stimulate the nervous system. It can increase um, heart rate and blood pressure. So, for example, hypertension is something that we pay really close attention to when we screen people. But it does have different effects than than methamphetamine, crystal meth. Um, so, you know, breaking through all of that taboo, I think Oprah had published in the 90s about that study. MDMA produces holes in the brain. Um, about 20 years later, she published in her magazine, MDMA, and I forget the exact words, but might be the, the love cure for couples. And she published about some of the positive research and effects that had been happening around, you know, how people can use MDMA for healing. And we did do a couple study that we actually MAPS just finished, I think, a year ago or so. So breaking through all of those taboos. So research in the U.S. really picked up in the early 2000s. We conducted, you know, over half a dozen phase two trials, which is um, some of the small research studies that we did with post-traumatic stress at different areas across the U.S. And then we launched our phase three program, uh, which started in the U.S., Canada, and Israel. And we're launching a second phase three program, which is in a handful of countries across the EU and a couple of sites in the U.K. So those studies in the EU and U.K. are starting now. I think some of the first participants just got their treatments at some of those sites. So it's really exciting to see it. Mm. Certainly psychedelic research has been happening in Europe. These aren't the first psychedelic trials. Beckley Foundation 
and others have been doing small studies with various medicines, MDMA and LSD and psilocybin. So we may anticipate its approval potentially uh, over the coming years in the UK and, and Europe as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope. You know, I'm wondering um, about the costs of this therapy. Would it be more expensive or less expensive than standard therapy? Because on one hand, you know, it's maybe shorter number of sessions as opposed to, you know, what traditionally might be three, six, 12 months plus, um, and also maybe all the medication that comes with that. Um, is there any kind of data on whether it may be more expensive or less expensive? I know that's a difficult one to compare it to, but, you know, what might be the early indications about cost? Yeah, yeah. We're doing more and more nuanced analysis about that. But so MDMA-assisted therapy, we've done studies where we delivered two sessions. So people only get MDMA twice. And many of our studies have three sessions. People get MDMA three times. So that's the model that we're looking at. It's not a, an ongoing prescription people take for the rest of their life. It's really an adjunct to therapy and an in intensive short-term treatment. But it is intensive. It's 42 hours of therapy with two therapists. So it's over 80 ther therapist hours, mm. which is a lot in a short period of time. You know, over several years of regular talk therapy, somebody could easily have 80 hours with their therapist. But it's really parsed out, you know, in these one hour segments over time. So over the course of the lifetime, it is likely to be incredibly less expensive than the current expenses people are paying for psychotherapy and medication for conditions like post-traumatic stress. The VA, the Veterans Administration in the U.S. spends billions of dollars every year on disability payments related to post-traumatic stress. So really, this is an issue that is costing people, not just people and individuals personally and the functionality of their lives and the thriving of their life and their relationships, but on a government and social services level, it's incredibly expensive for us to have mental health conditions that don't have good treatments. So it is promising that this will be an asset. In the clinical research in, um, to date, Max has really taken the stance that we want to give the highest quality of care that we can. So we, we've been lucky to have donors who've supported us in that, believe in that as a mission. But it's meant we always choose as, as much as we can offer two therapists and 42 hours of therapy and very comprehensive screening and follow-up. And we think that that's important and that really represents our values and the kind of care that we want to give to people. When we brought our studies to Europe, the European Medicines Agency, EMA, really kind of questioned us like, well, how much is this going to cost us? Um, that's mm -hmm. not a question the US FDA asks because in the US, um, our insurance is very different than it is in Europe. So with Europe, you know, and having more social services and health coverage provided for all people, the government really cares about the economics of treatment because they're going to want to pay for it for people and make it available. Why would they approve a treatment that's expensive? So it's different in the EMA. So it's really challenged us and it's good because we have to think about this as the treatment moves out of research into clinical practice. How much does this cost patients? 
And how do we get it, get it covered by health insurance? So how do we make a good argument to health insurance companies that it's in their best interest to cover MDMA-assisted therapy? So we're doing things like really researching, you know, what is the difference between a benefit of having two sessions versus three? And really articulating why we think that there's a need for two therapists. I can't imagine doing eight-hour sessions with just one person. Mm. Um, it's a lot to ask of one therapist. And really, um, we don't have any research to show us, you know, what are the differences between one or two practitioners. So navigating all of those questions now to make sure that the treatment isn't just going to work for mental health conditions, but people can actually afford it. And we've been working on an initiative for many years, and it will probably take a couple more years to really understand how health insurance companies can cover this treatment. But that's a commitment that we have too. Yeah, it does uh, pose some tricky questions, although, you know, it's, as you say, it's, it might be well be a good investment because over time it might be cheaper and not just economically uh, is there an advantage, but the quality of living that you might obtain from going through those sessions. You know, you can get that years ahead of what you might have, what might have taken years of treatment. And also I wonder, you know, this is, it's early days of it. And sometimes things are expensive when they come out first as you kind of figure things out and find ways yeah. to do it that's cheaper. You know, at first flat screen TVs, only rich people had them. Whereas now, you know, they're a lot more readily available and we can, they're more affordable. And um, so yeah. you imagine it might be a, probably not the same as flat screen TVs, but somewhat of a similar trajectory as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. That's all the time we have for today, uh, Shannon. And that's been such an enlightening discussion. Really feels we're on the precipice of, of change, of a real cultural shift when it comes to therapy. And uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing with MAPS. And um, I look forward to hearing how things pan out over the, a number of years in US and Europe and particularly in Ireland. Yeah, thank you. For anyone who's listening that's in the countries I mentioned where clinical research is happening, you can look up the current trials that are recruiting if you're a person or you know someone who's suffering from post-traumatic stress and might be interested in participating in the study. And you can also go to mdmaptsd.org to see where those study sites are and be interested in recruitment. For practitioners, therapists, and doctors and counselors, we have our MDMA therapy training program and we offer versions of it totally online and enjoy training people all around the globe. We've trained people from about 20 countries since we started and information about that is on mapspublicbenefit.com slash training. And I just wish for everyone's inner healing wisdom to be able to shine through and for you to have all that you need in your environment.